Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Ars Boni. In this case, a special edition of the series. Uh, it's the 23rd of March, 2022 today. And I have the privilege and uh, the, the pleasure to introduce five most distinguished speakers to you today, dealing with one of the most important legal initiatives that the European Union is um, struggling with or debating on at the moment, at least when it comes to the digital arena in which all of us are living more and more of our time. It's about the Digital Services Act, which is one of the top priorities of the Acting Commission, and which is one of probably, as I said already, the most important legislative pieces making it through during this commission because of its impact on our daily behavior and our daily way of dealing with the internet because it's so much dealing with platforms. And uh, the purpose of today is twofold, at least in my view. It's on the one hand, um, one of the occasions to deal with um, this on a fundamental level, to get some orientation about what we are talking about here and what we are debating about here. And on the other hand, giving some kind of an update about, um, about the, the, the issue from, um, from, from a point of view, uh, whether the war and, and the situation that we see in Ukraine at the moment has changed anything on this. Um, I may introduce the speakers to you um, in the order of appearance, which is not the alphabetical order. We will start uh, with Lukas Feiler at the beginning. Uh, Lukas Feiler is um, one of the most prominent lawyers in the field of digital law um, in Austria, uh, both from an academic point of view, but also from a practical point of view. Um, he's working with Baker McKenzie, and he will take over the task to give us a general overview about where we stand. So this is probably the most complex of all the tasks that we have in front of us. After that, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Ant Haller to you. Uh, Ant Haller is one of the leading lawyers working with Google for many years now. We have uh, met each other, I don't know, 15 years ago or so for the very first time. Uh, one of the people being certainly uh, the most qualified um, on, on speaking what uh, this means for a company like Google, what we see at the moment. Uh, then I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Susanne Lackner to you. Uh, Susanne is in a leading role in one of the regulatory authorities dealing with what's going to come up here. Uh, she's working um, in the leading position for the Austrian Kommunikationsbehörde Austria, which is uh, roughly speaking, the regulator or the authority that will need to implement whatever is coming out of the DSA, and who is already in this position for quite some years now, knowing quite a lot about how uh, regulation and content and platform and, and, and regulation of content on platform looks like in a legislation like Austria, which, as many of you might know, has already a national legal basis for this um, in particular, uh, the Austrian Kommunikationsplattformengesetz, so the Austrian Federal Law on Communication Platforms, that is under the supervision of the Kommunikationsbehörde Austria and uh, Susanne Lackner's uh, guidance and leadership. And then we have two uh, colleagues from uh, the Department of Innovation and Digitalization in Law. Uh, first, Katarzyna Barut, and then second, Dr. Richard Rack, uh, who are working in uh, different scientific research projects at the department, but this is not the primary reason why they are here today, although this is obviously also important. Uh, they are primarily here because their national background is Polish or Hungarian, and they will give us some kind of a mixture between an academic overview about what's happening in their country, 
but also with a personal touch about how they interpret this from their national background. That's the setting. Um, I'm I'm very thrilled about the setting. I may also tell all the audience who are listening to this live, if you have any comments, uh, kindly put them into the YouTube chat. I will try to monitor this. And we also agreed on that we will do this very interactively. So just as a reminder to everyone on the panel and in the audience, please contribute to this as actively as you wish. Lucas, you have the floor. Super, thank you so much for, for the kind of introduction. Uh, I'm taking this away with a brief introduction of, of the Digital Services Act uh, and, and uh, other hate speech related uh, regulatory regimes we, we have. Uh, and really wanna start with, with taking a look at, at the DSA and kind of the basic regulatory approach it takes. And it's what I would call an, an onion regulation. Uh, it's not adopting a one-size-fits-all approach, but rather regulating different uh, scopes, different uh, types of, of service providers with increasing uh, level of detail. So the, the, the broadest bucket we have within which all other smaller buckets then land, but the, the, the largest bucket we have are intermediate services in general. And this is what uh, many of you may already be familiar with from, from the e-commerce directive, in particular as, as regards the safe harbor provisions for access provider, hosting providers, and, and caching providers. Here, the, the first news here is that the, the safe harbor provisions as such uh, are copied verbatim. They're now will be in the form of, of a regulation, but on substance, it's, it's basically copy and paste. There's one additional good Samaritan provision. It basically says that to, to the extent uh, a service provider voluntarily monitors content or in, in compliance with legal obligations does so, it's not losing the safe harbor. Quite valuable clarification. Uh, also, uh, from a, a kind of bird's eyes view, I, I think a, a particular highlight um, to point out is how the DSA addresses the country of origin principle uh, that we now have, have in the e-commerce directive. Basically, it is being left untouched, uh, specifically as, as regards the enforcement of, of the DSA and the specific obligations in the DSA. We do have a, an additional country of origin principle, if you will, by making the the enforcement authority of, of the country of origin uh, responsible for enforcing uh, the DSA against that particular provider. But the general question of when can a member state regulate online services that are being provided cross-border from a provider in another EU member state here, the, the basic rules will remain. So that's, that's I, I think, a first important touch point. Then specifically, when it comes to obligations that the DSA is imposing, we have firstly transparency reports that, that all intermediary services will, will have to make public about certain aspects of their activities, uh, cooperation requirements with national authorities, uh, a requirement to, to appoint a point of contact uh, that does not necessarily have to speak the local language, just uh, the language of an EU member state, but nonetheless, have a clear line of communication. And only for non-EU providers, there's a requirement to appoint a legal representative so that the legal service can be performed. Where it gets more interesting is when we drill down and look at the smaller buckets, starting with hosting services. 
here we have additional requirements that go beyond what we used to have, still have in, in the e-commerce directive, the, the takedown notice and, and the decision mechanism that a provider will have to adopt when deciding whether or not to take down uh, particular content has been regulated in more detail, in particular the requirement to notify the user who has made the notice or notify the, the user whose content is being taken down. The, I'd say the, the, the vast majority of obligations really kick in once we start looking at online platforms. Online platforms are a subset of hosting providers. Uh, these are hosting providers that ultimately make the content that is being uploaded by users available to the public. That basically makes a, a hosting service an online platform. And for online platform, it will now be mandatory to implement an internal complaint handling system. So if, if a takedown notice is received and a decision is made about that takedown notice, there has to be an internal appeal mechanism, if, we, if you will. And after that appeal mechanism, when a, a second decision has been made by the online platform, there's even an, a mandatory alternative dispute resolution, resolution process foreseen. We then have additional uh, tools that we will also be, be briefly contrasting with what we have in, in existing hate speech legislation that are designed to, to ultimately provide additional, uh, additional mechanisms around in particular hate speech and, and other illegal content, starting with a, a trusted flagger pro program uh, with the addition that it's, it's not flaggers, so people's that, people that will, will, be, be, will receive priority when, when they, they file a takedown notice. These are not individuals that are trusted by the online platform, but rather trusted by the government authority. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that in all member states, the same level of, of um, trust is warranted in, in what a particular government considers a trusted flagger, but that's, I suppose, a, a difficult discussion. Uh, there will also be a mandatory, uh, an obligation to report criminal offenses uh, that the online platform learns off. So it's not up to, to the online platform whether to, to notify law enforcement authorities. Um, then rather specific KYC obligation uh, when the platform allows traders to conclude distance contracts with, with consumers. Extended transparency reporting obligations for online platforms building on what the hosting services have to do in any case. Uh, and last but not least, certain rules around uh, transparency for online advertising. The, uh, to some extent, uh, focus of, of a lot of what the DSA provides for is with very large online platforms, VLOPs, as they're sometimes also called. These are online platforms that have more than 45 million users in the EU. And, on account of that fact, uh, are subject to additional, more stringent, even more stringent uh, obligations, um, starting with, uh, and this goes a bit to what you, Nicholas, said uh, in, in, at the start and, and might, might uh, be, be room for further discussion. Uh, a provider that large may, may carry with it certain systemic uh, risks, uh, in, in particular in, in, in conflict situations, and the management of, of certain systemic risks indeed becomes mandatory. Um, also in, in, in that spirit, the appointment of a compliance officer 
is, is mandatory. Uh, there's also an, an, an obligation to have conducted external independent audits on, on the compliance structure within uh, the, the VLOP. There are, again, additional transparency requirements, uh, even uh, I, I think very much still to be debated requirement to grant certain trusted researchers access to data for research purposes, provided that they undertake to uphold certain security and, and, and data protection uh, requirements. Um, we have a public security, public health uh, crisis uh, protocol uh, provision that effectively says that for, for certain public security, public health issues, uh, VLOPs should have a certain protocol, how to deal with, with issues. Again, something that I think not only in the context of COVID, uh, but uh, the, the current situation in, in, in the Ukraine might be of, of relevance. Um, and then last but not least, when it comes to enforcement, VLOPs will be facing a different landscape. The European Board of Digital Services, um, somewhat comparable to, to the European Data Protection Board in its setup and, and, and purpose, uh, will coordinate enforcement efforts uh, between the member states and, and effectively the way it's designed, very much like the European Data Protection Board, would have the possibility to, let's say, nudge um, local authorities uh, that have jurisdiction about uh, a provider established in, in, in their member state to, uh, to in indeed engage in certain enforcement actions. And last but not least, the Euro European Commission as really a, a very unique uh, instrument that we otherwise only know from European competition law would have direct enforcement powers, uh, indeed, uh, this includes the authority to impose fines of up to 6% of the turnover uh, that the European Commission's proposal had, had set out um, and therefore simply uh, provides a, a different enforcement landscape reflecting the, the, the onion uh, approach that, that the DSA takes. Uh, here, a very brief, and I, I will not go into details in particular not concerning Austrian legislation that uh, Yusuf Sane will, will uh, certainly uh, speak uh, further about. Um, and, and just to give you a bit of an idea how, in particular in Germany and Austria, existing hate speech legislation compares to the DSA. Uh, the, the first, I think, important aspect to point out is that we currently have hate speech related uh, legislation in Germany and Austria in the form of, of the Kommunikationsplattform Gesetz and, and the NetzDG in Germany, whereas the DSA takes a rather horizontal approach and simply provides all these mechanisms with regard to any illegal content that is defined as content violating any EU or member state law. So we have a much broader approach being taken by the DSA um, that to some extent also explains maybe a, a different uh, approaches for, for some of the issues like the, the notice and, and appeal process. Here we have in, in Germany, Austria, rather fixed and flexible uh, timelines where DSA provides additional flexibility uh, when it comes to appointment of, of compliance officers. The DSA certainly takes a more uh, European approach to things and, and imposes no, no language requirements. Uh, another aspect maybe to point out is simply things where the DSA goes beyond existing legislation in Germany or Austria, and that's the, the trusted flagger uh, program. I briefly pointed out uh, earlier, 
uh, and requirements to protect against abuse. On the one hand, from users who are repeatedly uh, violating the law and, and accordingly would have to get blocked eventually uh, by, by the platform. And secondly, uh, users that are, are repeatedly uh, filing wrong takedown notices or, or, or filing uh, abusive complaints. Uh, the ability to file such notices or complaints can and indeed would have to be de deactivated uh, for, for a certain time period by a platform. And lastly, as, as pointed out, the systemic risk management aspect, something that in today's time, uh, unfortunately, I, I think will be of relevance. That in short uh, is, is an overview. Um, and uh, with that, um, I'm, I'm uh, very happy to hand over to you, Art. Thank you very much, Lucas. That was uh, a great overview and thanks for the invitation. I've not prepared slides. I've not prepared like a, a clever speech. So, uh, but I, I can give a few maybe reactions about how this sounds from a perspective of a global uh, internet service provider. And let me first say that we at Google, we really believe that this fight against hate speech, against all sorts of illegal content, but also against disinformation and other harmful content that might not, strictly speaking, be illegal, is really a global challenge for not just us, but for all of our society. And we can only solve this together with all the stakeholders that are relevant here. And uh, I mean, with the politicians who are responsible for the legislative framework, by all regulators who then apply the framework, by judges, by the law enforcement bodies, uh, and of course, by the users who spread information, who spread content that might be illegal or harmful in the public. And then obviously there's a big responsibility on platforms like ours, and we accept this uh, social responsibility as a platform provider and that's the reason why we uh, try to progress good, smart regulation around these topics and why we try to stay engaged, why we appear on panels like this, why we constantly speak with politicians and lawmakers to find the right balance. Like what is the right approach for our society? And I'm extremely happy that today we hear more about specific rules, not just the DSA, but also about the Hungarian and, and Polish ideas and about the uh, communication platform law in Austria. And I'm saying that because it will demonstrate how difficult it is to comply with all these different rules in different countries for a company like ours, or I probably speak for many global platforms who are in this extremely difficult balancing situation, how can we comply with the local law? And at the same time, how can we uh, make sure that fundamental rights, like freedom of speech, freedom of expression is being ensured? That's not always easy. Uh, and that is exactly the reason why we believe very strongly that it makes much more sense for the European countries to work together 
on one common file, one act that regulates the uh, content space online. And that is what the European legislator tries to achieve with the DSA. And we're extremely supportive of that approach. Why? As I said, because it makes our life easier in a sense that we have one framework for Europe and not a framework in every particular country. Um, because as, as we've seen, they're very different from each other. And that makes it extremely hard and, and burdensome for, for global companies. So in essence, like all regulatory initiatives such as the DSA should be designed in a way that, um, that allows all necessary steps that, that we need to undertake to protect our societies regulate content in a meaningful way. That's just as a as an intro statement um, how we think we should regulate content. And um, as Lucas Filers had extremely nicely explained like the overall picture of the DSA, maybe just um, on on a not that high level but on a on a lower level right now, the different European institutions are talking with each other. Uh, and Lucas has, has kindly re referred to the commission uh, draft, the paper that is on the table. But then when you're in these negotiations, you see that it's not just the commission, it's also the European Parliament with thousands of amendments to this draft. And then the European Council, and they're all speaking with each other, discussing the specifics and uh, the specifics or the, the, the devil, so to say, is really in the detail. While we support this DSA approach, we're still very concerned about specific provisions, about uh, a few provisions that are not yet clear. It's very difficult to comply with these provisions from a, a point of view of the service provider. We're also very concerned that a couple of provisions are not necessarily good for the users. They're often well-intentioned, but may result in, uh, in negative consequences for, for the users. And that's what we are very concerned about. So we want to achieve something positive for our society and not create uh, bigger challenges and, and bigger burden for everyone. If I may, I can just pick random examples just so um, the audience can see how difficult it is in practice to talk about specific provisions. Um, one, for example, is the provision about the, the question uh, in how much detail a service provider need to explain when content is not available online or not visible online. So the current commission document regulates that uh, users need to be notified if certain content is not available. What does that mean? It means if someone complains about a YouTube video and YouTube removes that video, YouTube needs to explain why this video was removed. Okay, so sounds logic. Um, it's doable, it's difficult, but it's doable. It, it is um, 
well-intentioned. But now the council and the parliament propose uh, something that goes beyond the information about the availability. They propose that content providers like YouTube should explain any restriction of the visibility of content. It's really a legal, like specific thing here, but it means whenever a content is still available, like visible to the user, but maybe not as visible as before. Let's assume a specific video goes down in the ranking because YouTube believes it is maybe providing misinformation. Then we would need to explain that in detail to all users, like why this specific video is still visible, but not visible in the same way as it was before. So it, it sounds like, yeah, now he's talking about details, but the, the interesting point here is that if we're not focusing on the details, we're losing the chance to provide something positive for, for societies. So what we try to do from a service provider point of view is really to look at the, at the, uh, at the text, say, is this precise enough um, that provider can comply with that? Is it proportionate? Is it meaningful to the user? And is it not just a good idea for one particular case, but, um, but for all cases that platform need to deal with? Uh, that, that is always very, very important. Another minor point, which is in discussion right now, are user notifications. So the European Council has now proposed expanding all appeals and out-of-court redresses from content uploaders to everyone who complains about specific content. So let's assume you're a user of YouTube and you flag a video because you don't like that video, right? Then the council wants us to explain to the flagger why the video was not removed. Not removed, right? So it's extremely interesting because that means like whenever someone tells us, I don't like something, we need to explain why the video is okay, why the video is legal, why the video is not infringing our community guidelines. And that creates an enormous um, exchange of communication with every user who interacts with the platform that is just not sustainable. So here policymakers should really like forego the expansion of these redress mechanisms to every user who complains about something. It should really be limited like in the, in the commission proposal to specific content uploaders. So I stop here with giving very specific examples, but just so you get a, a gut feel of where we are right now in, in the process and um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to take questions later on. And um, now I think I can pass over to Susanne Lackner. Um, and I'm very curious to hear about the Austrian content regulation law, communication platform law. Okay, uh, thank you very much. So my name is Susanne Lackner. I'm from, from Austria. Um, and uh, um, 
Um, I'd like to bring in a slightly different perspective because I think the issue was uh, mostly to, to discuss a bit the perspective. We have now the Copper and the communications platform law. Uh, but of course, we are aware that the French presidency is now speeding up the process and maybe by not even end of June or, or earlier, we might have uh, the DSA. So I think we need to talk about what happens before, you know, how can a transition take place or what will be the new challenges. Also, um, and as Arndt rightly said, uh, uh, the, 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 there is still the DSA is under review and with quite substantial differences between Council and EP position and also the European Commission, which is quite obvious also in regards of what is very important for us uh, in regards of uh, governance, of course. Um, so uh, maybe uh, that's why I would like to focus and go back to the issue in principle, uh, uh, how to combat hate speech. And um, I like to say that, of course, media regulators have always dealt with hate speech. So uh, it's a core value of content regulation not to have hate speech and to uh, value, of course, the, the human dignity. Um, and um, it has always also we had to deal with the challenge of drawing the line between legal and illegal hate speech. This was already highlighted by Anne. Um, so, but but still, I think one has to say that there is quite another dynamic now in the online environment uh, because we have new marketplaces of public exchange uh, by the social media. Um, and also, and also in, in, in terms of quantity, uh, the issue, of course, has uh, exploded and it cannot be left any longer to regulators and to, to courts to deal with this issue. I think this is uh, very important. And I know that platforms also realized uh, that they have a responsibility and of course, we value uh, the voluntary initiatives which have been taken also in the past. Um, also, at this point, I would like to draw also the, the, the link uh, towards disinformation and Ukraine crisis, because also this is a, um, intrinsically linked. Uh, I think uh, I don't want to dwell on this because it's probably worthy another discussion. Um, but of course, um, uh, we need new strategies uh, to, to, to combat also these phenomena. And uh, for instance, uh, everybody knows we have sanctions now in place uh, against RT. As far as I'm aware, um, the, the big platforms have discussed this issue with the, with the commission and have already taken uh, steps to eliminate this kind of content. Um, from their platforms. Now, and I also have a slightly different approach of what uh, Lucas had said and won't repeat the obligations which are enshrined in the Copige. Uh, I'd rather say that Copige, um, Netzdege, and also the Loi confortant le respect de la République, we shouldn't forget this example. Um, uh, and now the DSA, 
um, have are built on the same principle regarding the material uh, obligations. Um, and uh, this is um, introducing a co-regulatory uh, approach uh, in case of system failure and leaving in principle the, princip uh, the, uh, uh, the responsibility of platforms to um, avoid or combat uh, illegal content on their platforms. Uh, so um, this is the structure. It's the same for all these legislations. Uh, and I think we haven't thought of a better one up to now. Um, what um, I'd also say uh, that what, um, uh, you know, just summing up uh, the, the gay experience, uh, there has been, uh, as everybody knows, the legitimate uh, um, attempt by, uh, by the big platforms basically um, uh, to um, uh, make uh, lawsuits uh, regarding uh, the legitimacy uh, and the legal compliance of Copelgay with the e-commerce directive. But uh, taken aside this, they have taken uh, the steps which were foreseen in Copelgay and uh, uh, without now giving any details, um, say in, in principle have uh, complied uh, with this legislation and um, as all these legislation it's an attempt to, to deal with these issues and um, uh, especially in regards of transparency and also the user's right to at all uh, uh, have the possibility to uh, to, 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 to flag uh, illegal content to, to the platform and the complaints mechanism has proven to be useful. Um, now, what will be really new after the DSA? And there also, I have a, a slightly different understanding from the governance structure which has been proposed. Um, first of all, regarding the material obligations, there is, as mentioned, um, not so much difference. Um, uh, and, and as Arne said, uh, the details are currently discussed. Of course, they're not details, but um, as mentioned, the Council and the, uh, and, the, and the European Parliament are proposing more detailed um, uh, obligations. But for us as re regulators, it is, of course, the governance structure, which is changing. Um, and also there, we, uh, every, I'm sure that the public is aware that, um, that the council has proposed that the commission should have exclusive powers um, uh, uh, regarding uh, the overview of very large online platforms. Um, there haven't been any trilogue um, uh, conversations as far as I'm aware on this. So we'll see what comes out. However, um, as Lucas, I think, has refer referred also to the um, data uh, protection governance structure, it is a bit similar. However, um, the country of origin uh, principle is not, um, is not, uh, totally implemented because it um, gives 
at first, we don't know what the role of the commission obviously would be. And also uh, there is a quite strong position of the, uh, of the digital services coordinators uh, of the country of destination, which, uh, which will be a very useful uh, experience uh, because, um, uh, but because of course you may be aware of platforms because platforms are acting in, uh, in, in member states and are available there. So it's very useful to also uh, give the possibility of uh, the non-country uh, uh, of origin regulator possibilities to intervene. Um, and also you will have joint investigations uh, and also the involvement of, uh, of the board. So I think in the first place, the setting up of the governance structure and making it work Let's also bear in mind there are many um, technical um, preparations which, which must be made and also many uh, reporting obligations. So um, there are still a lot of questions and I'm sure this will be a big challenge for the member states how to implement this governance structure. And also let's bear in mind that the deadline for uh, uh, let's say implementation, because of course the regulation is directly applicable, but um, uh, uh, that the member states have to determine quite quickly how they will implement uh, the governance on their national uh, systems. Another point I would like to make is, as we know, sectoral regulators, one of the core principles is that they are independent. Now you have the, uh, the digital services coordinator, which uh, must have the possibility to take decisions, obviously, in the board, and who's uh, the contact person. So um, this is also a question uh, how the member states are going to deal with this at the national level, but also what is the role at all of the sectoral uh, regulators. Now, Everybody knows, and I think this is the reason why I'm invited as a media regulator, that of course there's a strong, um, uh, there's a strong role, there must be a strong role of media regulators, obviously, because uh, we have the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, which already provides for a lot of um, uh, obligations of uh, video sharing platforms, and also in terms of uh, online regulation in, in general. Um, and we have also had the discussion about how these legis legislative acts, such as the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, have to be delineated with the obligations um, uh, in, the, in the Digital Services Act. That won't be easy. And how will be the interplay between the different regulators who are in charge? Uh, let me also mention that we still have the articles eight and nine were, uh, of course, uh, also individual pieces of content may be, uh, let's say, pursued or uh, enforced, uh, measures of enforcement uh, can be taken uh, in relation to intermediaries. So also this kind of system, as was mentioned in a cross-border uh, context, will have to be tackled. Um, yeah, that's, that's some thoughts I wanted to give, um, 
and also um, just making the point that um, the fight against hate speech has now uh, reached uh, the dimension where we say there are several actors which are quite decisive in this process and we will have to work together yeah. even more. Yeah. Thank you so much, Susanne. Before we go into the country reports, may I just uh, spontaneously react to what I heard so far and ask two probably very stupid questions to all three of you, which is when, in particular, when I listen to Arndt, um, I'm I'm old enough to remember the debate that we had about the GDPR uh, 10 years ago in January 2012, when uh, Vice President Redding announced GDPR as a project. The big promise that was coming with that was one continent, one law. That was one of the, the key statements that she had given then in January 2020, 2012. And, and, uh, and since then, a lot of uh, things have happened. But I don't think that anyone in Europe would, would make the argument at the moment that we really have one data protection standard that is equally uh, enforced in 27 member states. And one of the reasons why this might not be the case is the role of the authorities, which is probably, which was probably underestimated uh, when GDPR was debated. And my question then to all of you would be, why should that not happen now when we look into this, what's happening at the moment with the DSA? That, that would be the first question. And the second one coming back in particular, Susanne, to your remark at the end, about that we need closer cooperation and that uh, hate speech is so an eminent um, subject where we need cooperation. Let me just share with you what I see at the moment when I'm using any of the social media websites that I'm using or platform websites that I'm using every day. I see an unbelievable amount of hate and, and, and crime and war and brutality and blood and dead people and everything. So, and, and different from Two months ago, it's not so much about you know individual phenomenons of crime, but it's 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 a central factor in the first war that we see on this continent since 1945. And my perception of what I see now in the debate on the DSA is that this is not really, at least in in the things that I read and that I see it's not fully reflected. It doesn't change anything. Although I think it changes something because there are plenty of arguments why people should or should not see this content on platforms. And my question to all three of you therefore is, what would be different in this war and how we see this war if DSA were already in place? Would that change anything significantly? And if so, would it change things for the better? Happy to take the, the, the first, uh, what will be a difficult shot. Um, maybe uh, on, on your first question, I, I just want to say, I think one of the big challenges is getting member states to do the hard work. And that means listening to stakeholder input. With the GDPR, we have seen in way too many provisions that a political solution was found that does not work legally and does not work in practice. And, and so it's, it's not just the politics that, that need to be aligned, but the substance of it. So that, that, that would be my take. And, and to, to a large extent, I think this falls to the member states. This is not 
Brussels. This is not the parliament, the commission. It's, it's really on the member state level that, that the hard work of legislation needs to be done. On the second point, I, I want to I wanna give it a shot and, and fully recognizing that this is a very large and, and very difficult topic. Uh, just a perspective I, I want to offer here is that in a liberal society, we have basically reached the understanding that the law should not govern all aspects of our life. Even things that we care very deeply about, we, in certain respects, we, we consciously make the decision of not letting the government regulate into certain spheres. And ultimately, this is, is what fundamental rights serve to ensure that there is a sphere of life that is free from regulation. And when it comes to regulating speech in the broadest sense, I think this question of how much regulation as a society we want, how much of, of the space do we want to be determined by law, and how much of it do we want to be free from regulation? How much do we want to ultimately let this society work out by itself? And, and just to give you one example, um, we have case law and, and, and deplatforming litigations in Austria basically saying any speech that is, is aiming at undermining fundamental rights is not protected speech under Article 10 of the European Convention of Human Rights. So that means that the legislator would be free to regulate any aspect of it without any limitation on the fundamental rights. We may still not want to do that. We may still want to allow uh, residents uh, in, in our countries, um, uh, corporate citizens to make good decisions in that space because regulating it is, regulating speech just carries a lot of risks in itself too. I'm, I'm not saying where the right line should be drawn. I'm, I'm just saying from, from my perspective, and, and to some extent, I'm, I'm arguing against my profession because everything needs to be regulated. That, that's good for my profession. But uh, I, I just think that's, that's an aspect to be considered here. Mm -hmm. um, if I can jump in. Oh, sure. I'm sorry, Arndt, go ahead. No, maybe I go first because I'm super interested in your view on, um, uh, on, on the regulatory aspects. But on, on the first question, I think, yes, it should be the aim of this DSA debate to formulate something that then regulates speech content online in Europe. The reason why I'm saying that is we we already see not just with the couple G and, and the Hungarian and Polish approaches and then the German uh, Netzwerk Durchsetzungsgesetz and many, many others in, in Europe. And I, I, I just want to read the, my own list. I, it's hard to keep track even as a, as a platform provider of what's being regulated just in the last, I would say, two years. Revenge porn law in Belgium, like an act against non-consensual dissemination of sexual images and recordings. In Denmark, a very lively debate around something like DSA, like a new proposal for social media regulation that's being discussed right now. Um, Hungary, we will come to that later. Then in Ireland, um, 
just published online safety and media regulation bill, which regulates a lot of the stuff that should go into the DSA. Italy, the Pilon bill on minors, specific bill on minors, plus a revenge porn bill. Um, Poland, we come to that later. Then Romania, also a very anti-LGBTQ bill that was proposed. UK, okay, that, that they're out, but but they have their own like online safety bill. So, meaning many European member states are still actively proposing new content regulation while they try to do something on a European level. That is ultimately not very European as an approach. So I really urge everyone say let's focus on a European wide. Uh, regulation that's far better than having both a European-wide regulation and a national regulation that are often contradictory to each other, should cause a lot of uncertainty for providers, confusion for the users, unclarity for regulators, and then um, an enormous amount of lawsuits afterwards about which law applies, why does it not apply, and th this is yeah, in, in my in my view, waste of energy. Let's try to come up with a proper DSA framework. Um, and then on, on the second question, the, this is extremely hard, and and this is where I'm I'm looking to Susan if she has a better view. I think um, what Ukraine and and the Russian invasion in Ukraine and and the whole. Um, use and misuse of platforms through proper information, misinformation, illegal content shows is that many platforms are trying to do the right thing here, even without um, having a regulator asking them to do something specific. That is problematic, but there's one point that only a provider can do, and that is to react fast. The legislator will not be able to uh, keep up with the speed of, of the developments. A regulator might be able to do that, but still needs more time. So whatever is illegal, we can already do and, and interact um, today, I think. And that's what many companies have been doing both in the Ukraine and, and in Russia, uh, reducing information in Russia, in particular ads, um, uh, terminating a lot of contracts, but then providing information to the Ukraine or uh, try to make sure that we differentiate between uh, content that is probably the right one um, that is not spreading misinformation, but then to find out what is right, what is wrong is extremely difficult. And uh, that's difficult for journalists. It's even more difficult for platform providers because we're really one step further away from the source of the information. And then it is also difficult for regulators. But if a regulator in a democratic country decides that providers need to remove certain content, let's take the example of Russia Today or Sputnik, then 
it's a regulator decision and uh, and companies need to to comply with that so it, it's really a an interaction between different stakeholders and um yeah if everyone tries to be responsible we're we're um making it a, a slightly better world but also we need to accept that neither dsa nor national content regulation laws will be the golden shot in the sense that it will solve all problems um, this information will always stay and we can also we can only reduce the amount mm -hmm. thank you and susanna uh, i'm a bit surprised always with this debate about free speech because the phenomenon Uh, or the, the, the contrast between free speech and illegal content, let's say hate speech, illegal hate speech, yeah, has always been an issue. And we have decades of uh, case law of the European Court of Human Rights on this issue. And as I mentioned, we uh, regulators also have to deal with this uh, on a daily basis. What is new, of course, is that now the platforms uh, for the reasons I mentioned, are also into, uh, included into that governance system, if you want, of, you know, dealing with hate speech, which is understandable. I mean, that, as mentioned, it can't be left anymore to regulators or, or judges or whatever. So um, this for, the, for, for this issue, and uh, of course, I don't envy you for this, but um, you can see a bit you know, what, what the problem was and the challenge was uh, in, in, in the decades before. Um, uh, so this to, to this. And another thing about the debate of, uh, on free speech, which a bit, uh, it's, it's some, sometimes a bit of um, uh, a contradiction is when platforms say, well, you know, we have to delete illegal content and, um, And also uh, uh, what they're not saying that, you know, the, the issue of overblocking, you do also have it in relation to content standards. I know it's a bit different, but in principle, you're saying that anything which contradicts your content standards may be, you know, disabled, deleted or whatever. So uh, I think you, you know what, what, what the challenge is in, in, in this. Um, And as to the legal framework we need, uh, this is also what I tried to, to point at, is uh, it is not so much the issue whether we have national, uh, a national solution or DSA for one reason, because DSA is a horizontal um, uh, approach and also uh, explicitly state that, that illegal content, both on a national basis or uh, infringing European law has to be deleted. You see what I mean? So the governance is different, but not the obligation which, um, uh, which is uh, conferred on, 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 uh, on, uh, on the platform providers. Um, and, um, and therefore, no, I'm not, I'm just saying that you have a, a, this governance system is different, of course, because you have to, I, I totally understand the argument that you are, you have to face uh, 27 regulators or whatever, and this makes a difference. What I'm saying in material terms, nevertheless, you will have to deal with this uh, type of illegal content also 
uh, on, a, on a national base. Uh, this is what I'm saying. Regarding the Ukraine crisis, yes, this is <laughs> what I mentioned before, this intrinsical link between uh, hate speech and, and also um, disinformation. Um, and uh, there, of course, we can say it's a perfect example now where, um, as Nicholas, I think, mentioned before, we have a perfect example now with this war. Uh, and then this leads us again to the sanctions. And there, I must say, I'm, this is not a matter of regulators deciding on, on, on the deletion of RT and Sputnik. It is a decision by the, uh, by the European Commission, which was uh, based on, of course, on the economic aspect. And it's it, it will be very difficult for, for uh, media regulators, especially and we also had discussions with the commission, obviously, uh, on this to topic. It's not an easy, you know, challenge uh, we are facing, and it's not something we will like, you know, to to sanction anybody uh, who who uh, infringes uh, these these rules. So this is my mm -hmm. my input to this. Thank you. And would you like to respond, or should we continue? No, I, I broadly agree. Um, I, I think we can continue. The, the, only, the only aspect where I shake my head a little bit is um, that the scope of the different national content regulations is very different. Different providers are addressed and sometimes um, the content is different that we should remove or should not remove depending on the countries. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the presentation of Hungary in particular, where I'm very concerned that a lot of content that is absolutely illegal, unproblem uh, legal, unproblematic, uh, like the advertisement for LGBT uh, content is restricted under the Hungarian law and Romania follows the same approach. And, and that's why I'm um, really advocating for European wide regulation. Mm -hmm. Okay, may I just bring in one technical question from the audience, probably going to you, Arndt, again. Uh, somebody wishes to know whether the 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 um, artificial delay of content to be shared on the platform would be one of the actions that could be taken by um, a large platform, so that something is not blocked or deleted, but that the distribution is is slowed down. Is that something you are doing or something that you're considering? No, I mean that that would that would uh, probably go against specific regulations about net neutrality. No, like if if we send content in a slower way, yeah, mm -hmm. is, if if that's the question. So now, when, when we when we not block content but consider to make the content less visible, with other other tools to do that. In particular, we're not highlighting this content. We're not recommending the content. We're not presenting this content to someone who has not searched for something. Mm -hmm. So there are really a, a broad variety of, of different means uh, to allow people to find the content, but not to, not to put that specific content in front of everyone who accesses the, the service. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Katarzyna, now and then Richard, up to you to, to give us a little bit more of insight about what's happening in Poland and in Hungary. Please, Katarzyna, you have to Thank follow. you very much. Just a second for me. I will share my screen. Uh, 
Um, thank you once again uh, for inviting me and uh, for the possibility to present the Polish approach regarding hate speech. Um, I would say I'll have more academic approach because I would like to present, first of all, the current state of play uh, and then the future prospects that emerged um, actually in the recent years, I would say in the last two years, and are facilitated now since January 2022, due to one event that I will also describe uh, in my presentation. Um, first of all, um, I will go explain the current means uh, that we have in Poland in place to counter hate speech and hate crimes. Um, and I would like to provide some statistics of the state prosecutor's office in presented in 2020 when it comes to the hate crimes, so-called. Then I would like to, as I mentioned, um, bring up the, this content moderation on online platforms case, which relate, referred to the right-wing party confederation and the implications that it had, which is the speed up of the works on the Polish draft law on the protection of freedom of speech on the internet. <laughs> this is the name of the, uh, of the draft law. And then at the end, I would like to shortly discuss the Digital Services Act and the Polish perspective um, on this. So when it comes to the current means of countering hate speech in Poland, we basically uh, hate speech in Poland, but also um, the, the means to seek the justice and protection of the rights of an affected person. There are actually two main legal paths that we have, one provided by the criminal law and one by civil law. Um, maybe at the very beginning, I should state, we do not have in Polish law a definition of hate speech. So when we are talking about hate speech, we may consider hate speech as one as fulfilling one of the elements of the provisions that are in redefined in criminal law or in civil law. Um, in Polish criminal law, uh, we have the, uh, the criminal offenses that are prosecuted upon request, and this is the defamation or insult. And then we have the, the, the criminal offenses that are prosecuted by the state. And here we can um, indicate the incitement to hatred on grounds of national, ethnic, racial, or religious differences, or on grounds of irreligiousness, or assault on grounds of xenophobia, racism, or religious um, intolerance and here when it comes to this assault it, um, it's also understood or it can have a form of public insult of a group of people on the mentioned grounds. Um, this is important to notice and so to, to stress um, how exactly this incitement to hatred is defined in the criminal code. It relates to grounds of national, ethnic, racial, religious differences, irreligiousness but it actually does not include the hate speech based on age, disability, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Such speech in Polish law is not criminalized and therefore is, is not illegal. And in this context, and in the context of such hate speech that is based on those elements, the removal by platforms of transphobic or homophobic content that violates their community standards, but is not illegal under Polish law, um, in the Polish debate remains an important point of contention. Um, and for the people who encountered this kind of hate speech, uh, who were affected by this hate speech, the route that they can follow, they can use to protect their rights and to hold those making such hate speech accountable for violations of personal rights, such as dignity or freedom, is usually the civil law uh, and civil procedure. 
And when it comes to the, how effective the prosecutor's office is when it comes to the prosecuting of, of, the, uh, of the offenses committed for racist, anti-Semitic or xenophobic reasons, in Poland, among one million criminal proceedings in 2020, 1,658, those were those proceedings for offenses committed for racist, anti-Semitic or xenophobic reasons. Preparatory proceedings, those were 1,566. Why am I mentioning this? I think that it's important to stress that almost half of those cases, of those preparatory proceedings, those are the cases concerning acts committed using the internet. So indeed, there is a, a big debate in Poland on the need of provision of platform regulation and content moderation policies, which would help in countering illegal content, hate speech, and disinformation. Um, it has, this debate has been ongoing for several, year, several years already. Um, and usually the incentive for those discussions have been the events which related to the right-wing parties or political movements and to the content that was presented by their supporters or directly by them and was then taken down by the platforms. And here there is an example from January 2022, uh, where the political group, um, a far right wing party, Confederation, um, denounced that the move um, of Facebook, which was page removal of Confederation, and it should be stressed that this page was followed by, followed by 600 million, uh, sorry, 600,000 Facebook users uh, when it comes to the statistics in 2021, um, that this has been an infringement on free speech. It should be stressed, I think, that it's not, uh, quite well known to everyone um, uh, taking part in the discussion that uh, the political debate in Poland may include radical statements and this party is one of the well-known parties when it comes to such radical statements uh, that include anti-immigration, anti-Semitic and vaccine skeptic posts. And that was also the reason why this fan page was taken down. Um, based on the information that was provided by the by the Facebook in the statement, in the press statement, the Confederation was removed due to repeated violations of Facebook's hate speech policy by publishing content that directly attacks other people on the basis of protective characteristics such as nationality or sexual orientation and also because of the disinformation or misinformation that relates to COVID-19. And what was the reaction to this uh, in the public um, community? In the or the reaction of the um, Polish authorities, it has been criticized very much, and it has reignited the debate on censorship by social media providers and possible regulations to be adopted at national level in order to strengthen freedom of expression and to help in countering illegal content, hate speech, and disinformation. Those are the official statements. Um, Ministry of Justice announced that he will facilitate the works on a new draft law on the freedom of speech on the internet, which is foreseen as means for effective implementation of the constitutional rights of freedom of expression, and that it should also help the protect, uh, to, to protect the society from fake news on the internet. 
Interestingly, Ministry also stated that the content posted on online platforms in the review is often subject to unwanted interference and is deleted, even if it's not contrary to Polish law. And that uh, he claimed that the, the victims of ideologically motivated censorship, I quote this, are members of religious and right-wing groups whose online content is deleted or blocked. Uh, and it has been also stated that the Digital Services Act would not be sufficient to protect those constitutional rights, so the constitutional right to freedom of expression, as the DSA itself focuses only on removing prohibited content, and it also carries a risk for citizens that um, these solutions will even strengthen the possibility of, once again, I quote, censoring content by large corporations. Well, the Polish draft law um, has been presented. Uh, it has been also consulted by the main um, Polish authorities, such as Polish Ombudsman um, or the um, Polish uh, Data Protection Authority. And I think that it's quite important to note what this, um, what this law includes, because some of the solutions proposed seem to be very controversial in my personal view, especially considering Polish public debate and the tensions on the political scene. So first of all, once again, the this, this law does not contain the definition of hate speech in any way, uh, even though it has been encouraged by the Polish Ombudsman to include such definition in Polish uh, legislation. However, it defines unlawful content, uh, which includes misinformation, content of criminal nature, content violating personal rights. And in addition to this, it also includes the violation of good morals that in particular um, may disseminate or advocate violence, suffering or, or humiliation. So the information can, can advocate um, like that. I would say that um, this is, those terms are very vague, can be interpreted in many ways. And it's also important to keep it in mind when it comes to another point that was proposed by uh, in the in the law when it comes to the introduction of a new public institution that should uh, oversee uh, the um, the platforms movements and and actions when it comes to the um, to the content moderation. Um, moreover, under this 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 draft law. Um, Social networking sites will be, not be able to remove content or block user accounts if the content posted there does not violate Polish law. And if content is removed or an account is blocked, the user will be able to file a complaint with the service. And then the service will have very limited time, 48 hours, to consider the complaint. If user is dissatisfied, the decision may apply to the service for restoration of access. And if the application is not accepted, then to the court. Um, the new institution that I mentioned that is introduced are actually two new institutions. One refers to the so-called John Doe lawsuit, which was actually warmly welcomed by many, uh, many authorities. It means that the person whose personal rights are violated by an unknown person will be able to file a suit for protection of personal rights without specifying the details of the defendant. This is the first time when something like this has been proposed in Polish law. 
the other new institution, uh, new solution that was proposed, um, that was not that warmly welcomed by, uh, by the society, is a new public institution, the Council for Freedom of Speech, that would be directly appointed by the Parliament's lower house, and that should act as an appeal body for those individuals who are not satisfied with the outcome of online platforms, uh, of, of online platforms' internal complaint procedures, I would say. So behind closed doors, uh, five members, because it's defined as uh, the, the body that should consist of five members, uh, five members of the council would deliberate and then could order the restoration of restricted content or access to users' profile, giving platforms 24 hours to comply. Needless to say that, as I mentioned, this has been broadly criticized uh, by Inter Alia Polish Ombudsman, National Council for Radio and Television, human rights organizations. Um, first of all, because um, in general, everyone agrees that um, the removal of illegal content from the net or blocking it at the request of an internet user is reasonable. However, the, the means that are proposed are not very much proportionate or appropriate. First of all, we do not have the definition of hate speech. We just have the definition of, the definition of unlawful content that includes vague concepts and could actually encourage discretion in the council's determination of limits on freedom of expression. That could be the outcome. Uh, the definition could be interpreted in many different ways. And this law, this definition, in combination with the fact that it would be interpreted by the, uh, by the council, brings also the risk, uh, risk of limiting freedom of speech by arbitrary interference of the council. So considering proposed provision, the statutory composition of the council will also not ensure that the members of the council would be, up, like, would be appointed upon agreement between various groupings. Um, I, as I mentioned, that would be this, this, um, uh, this council would be elected by uh, by the uh, lower uh, chamber of of uh, lower house of, of um, the parliament, and considering the current state of play, um, that could potentially mean that it would be selected only by the right wing parties. And uh, if we add to this uh, the the rather loose criteria that would guide the council in assessing what content is applicable uh, or acceptable and what could be blocked, um, because the council would be able to refuse to reinstate content if it considers that it constitutes disinformation or violates good morals. There is a justified concern that the level of protection would not be necessarily uh, equal for everyone. In the current political reality, I would say it's difficult maybe to trust uh, that such a council would stand up for, for example, sexual minorities. Um, moreover, what has been also um, pointed out by the uh, critique, um, the DSA does, does not seem to allow for stricter or additional provisions which are introduced in the draft law and also taking into account the advanced stage of work on the DSA, 
there is a doubt as to the purpose of creating a different system of protecting freedom of speech and the right to information in, in that way, which after the entry into force of the, of the DSA would most probably have to be amended, amended in line with the requirements of the DSA, which are binding for all member states. And um, it is rather advisable uh, to regulate the problems at supranational level and um, let's say make sure that uh, the uniform European standards would be applied, at least from the perspective of many Polish authorities who, um, who provided their opinion to this act. When it comes to the, uh, the Digital Services Act itself and the Polish perspective on this, um, so Polish government presented their views in April 2021. And here also there are main points that I think should be highlighted in this uh, to, to provide the information to what extent Poland would like to keep the possibility to have real impact on the uh, content moderation and on the co co collaboration with the with the platforms uh, on the national level more than international. So first of all, the Polish government wanted to uh, provide more competences for national regulators, uh, digital services coordinators, that what should ensure adequate supervision of the activities of online platforms and real impact on proceedings concerning users' complaints against service providers. So uh, the government proposed the addition to Article 8, according to which the digital services coordinator on its own initiative should have the possibility to scrutinize the order to act to determine whether it seriously or manifestly infringes the member state's law and should have, should have the right to revoke the order or make it ineffective on its own territory. Furthermore, also, um, there was a statement presented that the content management by large platforms should take into account as much as possible the social cultural context of the user's country. And it has been underlined that what is illegal in one member state may be legal in another, and this should be reflected in the orders issued, issued based on the DSA. And that the DSA should prevent issuing Europe-wide takedown orders if they infringe the national law only in some of the member states. Then there was also a statement that uh, uh, in order to counteract the arbitrary and unjustified isolation of certain actors from the access to information, the DSA should also provide for the possibility to issue an order to restore access to content. So considering uh, the response of the Polish government to the Digital Services Act and considering the proposed uh, draft law, um, the changes proposed, we can actually observe here the tendency to make the content moderation on the online platforms more dependent on the national regulations. Um, there is a question, big question, whether that would really support freedom of speech or rather provide greater limitation when it comes to the expression of the views online and whether that could potentially cause discrimination of select selected groups of society. And taking into account what I stated before, that not all forms of hate speech are criminalized in Poland, there is a doubt whether the rights of selected groups, especially sexual minorities, would be really protected and their freedom of expression ensured. And then there is also, from my point of view, um, 
a doubt whether the enforcement mechanism presented in the draft law is compatible with the harmonized oversight structure discussed at the EU level. It, 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 seems, it doesn't seem to be so. The DSA would guarantee the application of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. That's also an important point, which is um, not in many cases um, taken into account by the current uh, Polish approach and Polish government. So um, to, to, to say so, I, I know that um, Ant mentioned that um, he warmly welcomes the initiatives on the Polish level. I would be, I, I would actually ask whether the, um, the initiatives that were proposed so far, whether they should be accepted in this shape or not. I am not really sure. <laughs> I would doubt so. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much, Katarzyna. Um, so a little bit more of darker color here in this uh, picture, and let's continue with the darker color probably by Richard and the input on Hungary. Richard, please. Thank you for the invitation. I've also brought some slides uh, to share with you. So I would like to talk about the broader political implications and, and concrete legal examples concerning censorship of hate speech speech in, in Hungary in relation to the DSA proposal. This is highly uh, topical, considering that Hungary will hold uh, parliamentary elections on the 3rd of April this year. And also on the same day, the government has initiated a, uh, a referendum, what they call a, a child protection referendum against uh, LGBTQ propaganda. Uh, before turning to, to uh, the uh, campaigns uh, and, and what their implications are to our topic, uh, for those uh, who are less familiar with the uh, Hungarian political landscape, uh, after the uh, fall of uh, the previous system, socialist system, um, media was generally uh, what the right wing claims biased towards uh, the left wing. And uh, when uh, the current government um, came into power uh, 12 years ago uh, with a two-thirds constitutional majority, which they have uh, preserved uh, uh, ever since. Uh, they claimed that uh, they've uh, been, uh, uh, they've had to act uh, uh, in in media headwind, and for this uh, sense of injustice, uh, they made every effort uh, to uh, take control over uh, media. And uh, what uh, the current landscape uh, shows is that uh, with respect to traditional media mass communication channels, they are largely, uh, it's fair to say, they are largely pro-government biased. For example, the opposition uh, leader has had only five minutes during the election campaign to voice his uh, political agenda on, uh, on public television. For this reason, uh, both... Uh, um, newspapers, online newspapers, uh, uh, which uh, are not part of the uh, pro-government media conglomerate, and also opposition parties have had to move in recent years uh, to, to use uh, uh, online platforms uh, uh, in order to be heard. Here we see that there's open competition, but the resources are unbalanced between uh, the government side and the opposition side. Uh, the media landscape has come in for uh, criticism from both international organizations and the European Union. 
the Council of Europe Commissioner for Human Rights last year uh, said that um, the politically controlled media regulatory authority and distortionary state in intervention have eroded media pluralism and freedom of expression in Hungary. Of course, uh, the government disagrees with everything. Uh, with respect uh, to the DSA, uh, in the aftermath uh, last year when Trump uh, was uh, banned from uh, social media, the Minister for Justice uh, uh, in, in January uh, claimed that her, her uh, Facebook personal account uh, is uh, subject to shadow banning by, this, uh, by, by Facebook, which means that um, uh, her reach is, uh, is, is limited. And uh, the government had an in intention to regulate social media that month. However, uh, by April, there was a, a U-turn. Uh, the government postponed its legislative plan and said that let's wait for the DSA to be adopted and then Hungary will create the corresponding national law. So what is the reason behind this U-turn? It's because the government generally agrees with uh, the current DSA proposal. In particular, it welcomed um, uh, the designation by member states uh, of, of uh, competent authorities responsible for the application of the DSA, and in particular, the appointment of uh, uh, digital services coordinators. As, um, however, uh, the opposition has concerns with this. As uh, uh, Lucas Feiler has uh, highlighted, uh, the, the power to um, certify trusted flaggers, for instance, uh, is, is, is something that uh, uh, the opposition would not leave uh, to, uh, uh, to authorities which, have, which they claim have, um, are subject to governmental influence. And for this reason, one of the leaders of the opposition, who is uh, also a member of the European Parliament, uh, Anna Donat, has uh, and and who is active in, in has been active in the DSA debate, has uh, advocated rather for an independent EU institution that would observe compliance with rules on transparency, content moderation, and political advertisements. Um, there are uh, important political implications uh, regarding to, to the regulation of key issues uh, uh, relating to the DSA proposal. As I mentioned, uh, uh, if, if the institutional oversight concerning application and enforcement of uh, the DSA is uh, handed to member state authorities, as Article 38 of the DSA envisages, then this would favor current governmental parties' interests who have, um, as the opposition claims, um, um, influence over member state authorities like the media and telecommunications authority. On the contrary, if there would be an EU body, then that would probably uh, better serve current opposition's interests. The other important uh, uh, debate is, is around the threshold of hate speech. And I, I will uh, highlight this with some examples now uh, from, uh, uh, from the uh, campaigns. Uh, the difference here is that if there's a higher threshold, uh, which Hungarian law 
uh, is traditionally in favor of due to historical reasons, because during socialism, there was strong censorship. So during the 90s, the constitution and the criminal legal system was uh, created, uh, interpreted in a way to, uh, to, to, to leave uh, the, the scope of freedom of expression um, uh, and uh, uh, to not be subject to, to restrictions, limitations. And uh, uh, this is also uh, in line with uh, current EU law, the Council Framework Decision, on uh, which has um, which was adopted in 2008, uh, which uh, defined a hate speech uh, to to be used uh, on an EU level. However, if uh, there is, there would be a lower threshold for hate speech, like uh, in, more in line with the current hate speech policies of online platforms, then that would probably uh, disfavor current governmental parties' interests and would better serve current opposition's interests. This is easier probably to understand through examples. If we look at uh, top uh, financed and, and viewed uh, political advertisements on YouTube during the uh, last uh, three years, courtesy of uh, Google's transparency report on, on political advertising in, in Hungary, we see that uh, the top 15 advertisements were all smear campaigns against opposition sponsored by the government party or its satellite organizations. If we uh, look at how this has evolved uh, during the elections campaign this month in March, uh, there are two noteworthy remarks. One is that in the past week, uh, the, uh, the main, the key message of the government uh, on, on, on YouTube, uh, I mean, the key message in the way that it was uh, uh, financed uh, 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 in, the, in the most, uh, uh, with, with most uh, sponsorship was that the opposition leaders are dangerous, let's stop them. Now, this is uh, uh, an interesting legal question, whether fear monitoring would be compliant with YouTube community guidelines or not. Um, that there, there are strong debates on both sides, but if YouTube would uh, find that uh, this uh, violates its community guidelines, then it would be uh, a, strong, a clear interference with election campaigns. And of course, then uh, the government uh, parties would claim that they are victims of uh, the interference by the West. The other problem is that uh, YouTube uh, has uh, taken down one of uh, the satellite one of the governmental parties' uh, satellite organizations' advertisement. Uh, however, if if uh, somebody like me clicks on the reasons for policy uh, for for the policy violation. There's no clear publicly available statement of reasons why this advertisement was removed. Now, considering that this advertisement had a reach of several million people in, in Hungary, I think it would be important that the DSA proposal, Article 15, specifies that the statement of reasons should not only be uh, provided to, to, the, uh, to the recipient, to, to the advertiser, but also to the wider public, public, because this could, for example, serve educational purposes, uh, 
um, that is to say, uh, to, to inform the public what is okay and what is not. If we look at uh, the top finance political advertisements on Meta uh, during the last uh, three years, we see a similar pattern. Uh, the uh, main advertisement was the Hungarian government. Second uh, um, advertiser was uh, Fidesz, the government party, and eight out of the top 10 were pro-government and six out of the top 10 were so-called political influencers who uh, amplify pro-government voices. In case these influencers are uh, suspended or even terminated uh, from uh, the online social media platform, of course, it does not, it would not create such a, a political backlash as if, um, um, as if one of the politicians or, or the government party uh, would be uh, would be subject to such restrictions. And uh, we see on eighth and, and ninth place, uh, uh, Rakai Filip, uh, who is the, uh, the main political influencer on the right wing, his uh, account was uh, terminated by uh, Facebook uh, last year after uh, he criticized, uh, an, after, after posting, uh, uh, um, an anti-LGBTQ uh, message in which he compared uh, an award-winning photo uh, at uh, Amsterdam Pride uh, with himself calling the photo a disgrace and calling himself normal. So th these differences between them and us is probably a textbook example uh, of, of violating Facebook's community standards, which specifies uh, 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 with many examples what kind of posts uh, violate uh, its standards. However, this would not qualify as incitement to hatred under Hungarian law. So it would not reach the higher threshold uh, that uh, Hungarian law provides. So it should not be freedom of speech in this case should not be restricted. So what could be the solution? Um, we, uh, we've had a lengthy uh, debate, uh, Hungary hung, uh, Hungarian legal scholars uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s about where the, the limitation of freedom of speech should be. Uh, but of course, now we are in a different uh, politi political climate. We're no longer after the fall of socialism. We are in an unbalanced media landscape where one actor uh, accumulates its uh, messages. And uh, one legal, Hungarian legal scholar, Judith Bayer, recently suggested that even if the political messages do not reach the threshold of criminal hate speech, their repeated and consequent representation increases their effects, which is called in, in literature cumulative extremism. So for this reason, speech acts constituting subordination should be forbidden per se, without having to prove that there is a likelihood, a clear and present danger of incitement. So the speech act itself, uh, if it is suitable to to subordinate another group or, or individual, then it should be forbidden. And there should be no examination whether there's a causal effect 
to the hypothetical illegal behavior of others, whether there is incitement or not. So this is important because um, it um, uh, and, and it would be important to think about uh, on an EU level whether the current uh, the, the uh, definition of hate speech adopted in 2008 should be uh, uh, maintained or should there be a, a new definition, which of course would be important uh, from the DSA's uh, perspective in terms of uh, uh, ensuring a consistent uh, uh, legal interpretation across the European Union. And uh, thank you. This is what I wanted to share regarding Hungary. Thank you very much, Richard. So I, I think we saw quite a lot of additional problems that we haven't uh, tackled yet in the first half of this conversation. However, uh, we are already very much behind schedule um, when it comes to the timing of this overall event, which brings me to the question now uh, or to, to the suggestion that I would suggest that the first half of, the, uh, of, of this panel, so perhaps in reverse order, Susanne, Arndt, and then finally Lucas, summarize what they have heard and whether that has any impact on their assessment of what's happening in the DSA debate on the European level of the, at the moment, if you agree. Susanne, would you feel comfortable with this? You are muted, sorry. Sorry, yes, I'm fine with this. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think the discussion uh, has shown the, the many aspects uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the issue. Um, but again, I would like to reiterate, it, it is about free speech, basically. And it is about the free limit of the, li the limits of to free speech. And um, this is uh, something where now, uh, anyway, uh, regardless whether this is a national a system on a national scale or now a European one. And if you want to hear this from me, of course, we endorse uh, a, a, a common system on the European level. But uh, what I'm trying to say is what is new is the obligation uh, uh, conferred on platforms um, in this co-regulatory structure. Uh, which is sensible. And I will also add that it's very important that we have uh, a side of the procedures we're having between regulators and platforms that we continue to talk, that we have a, an open dialogue. This seems very important to me. We, we try to do this uh, in Austria and we will pursue on this level because as it has been mentioned, there is also always but the platforms are aware of that uh, kind of, let's say, national sensitivities. However, I also, I will not um, comment, of course, on the situation in Hungary and Poland, but I'd like to point at, at you know, uh, say that, as you know, there is a very strong commitment um, in, 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 in the country where we live here, basically in Austria, uh, to to um, to uphold free speech and also to have an independent regulator. This is a very important aspect too, as has been highlighted also in the two presentations. Um, yes, and, and and basically we'll try to, to work from there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Aren't. 
Okay, th there's a lot to say, but I, I try to keep it relatively short. Um, I think one learning is um, different European member states have different approaches. Um, national sensitivities, yes, but then also a, a different approach towards what need to be protected versus what needs to be removed. And I think the learning is let's be good Europeans, like all together, let's try to build this European framework instead of focusing on, on national sensitivities. This is not what Europe brings forward. Um, we should really concentrate on the, on the DSA. And then the other aspect is clarity in terms of the law. We heard in both presentations that a lot of the nuances, a lot of the the, the, the matters um, are still unclear in the law. And that is extremely unfortunate for everyone, for service providers, for regulators, for the users. So general plea for legislators, if they make a law, make it so clear that everyone understands what is in. And then last point, uh, which I think we all need to uh, continue talking about is that it's not this black-white thing like, is the content illegal or harmful? Then it needs to be removed or not, and then who needs to decide? But it's more complicated than that. There's a lot of nuance. And how do we deal with the content that is somewhere in between? Maybe we don't need to remove that content, but maybe providers need to explain that this content is a specific content. Maybe it's misleading. Maybe we, we need to provide more tools in, a, in the area of media competence or train people to, to make use of content, understanding that content might be disinformation, might be political, might be a campaign. Um, and tools like the transparency reports, tools like giving users visibility into what's behind the content, like who's the author, is this content paid? Um, that's sometimes more relevant and, and, um, and interesting for the users than just removing content. So um, common sense approach to make more use of, of the content that is available. Yeah, thank you, Arndt. Susanne wants to reply once again. <laughs> yeah, just one brief sentence, uh, because I was talking about national sensitivities. I don't think there's really a contradiction between DSA and a common framework and talking about national sensitivities, uh, because just one word, there's not only the unfortunate, of course, um, uh, ban of L LGBTQ uh, content, but there's also the strong sensitivities in the German speaking countries, of course, regarding Holocaust speech. Um, so I think we, we try to, we have to take into account all these aspects. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Lucas, you have the last words, if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I suppose for me, there are two takeaways from what I've heard that the one and, and really picking up on, on what Arndt uh, said just now, to me, it illustrates better than any intellectual argument how important it is that we, we, we create uniform rules for this. It is simply impossible for any, uh, for any platform provider 
to operate cross-border in the European Union if, if the legal landscape we're creating as, as a collection of member states looks as it currently does. This is not, this is not feasible. It's, it's not just, uh, that's at least the view I would take, an, an immense burden on, on the existing operators. It also creates a new barrier of entry for any new operator. So this is not in, in the competitive spirit that, that we want for our European digital economy. That, that would be my, my, my first takeaway. The second takeaway is a bit more, again, maybe on my, let's say, philosophical point, the, the aim of, of regulating, I think at the end of the day, too much. I think we, we can all agree there is certain content we we want to prohibit under the law that should really and clearly be illegal. And then there is other content we can clearly agree on, uh, it should be free to distribute. Uh, and then there is, I would argue a relatively large chunk in between uh, where first off, we, we uh, have lots of disagreement in, in our society, whether it's uh, vaccine information, where I think, Reasonable people should be able to agree, but quite clearly, statistically speaking, we as a society, we're not able to agree on these things. Uh, and, and the question simply is, do I want to live in a society, and, and looking at this from a very personal perspective, do I want to live in a society that prohibits every kind of content that I do not want to be distributed? And my answer is no. I I would want the law to permit things that I disagree with, ultimately giving all the different players in this ecosystem the option to do the right thing. To me, for me, this is this is to some extent, um, uh, let's say, a, a more a liberal view of 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 the world. And maybe I'm I'm too optimistic about things, but I choose to believe that that at the end of the day large corporate citizens will do the right thing. And, and if, if you we're looking at uh, the, the reaction of, of the corporate world to, to the war in, in the Ukraine, I think that thesis holds true by and large. Um, the, the second point maybe I wanna make is, is in connection to that, if we tried to regulate this entire space, like, like in Poland, the idea of basically saying everything that is illegal has to get blocked and everything that is legal must be distributed. We're eliminating any, any free choice of a platform operator to decide, yes, I want this on my platform. This is basically what I feel comfortable with. And no, this is, is what I don't feel comfortable with for whatever reason. We're eliminating that space altogether. And I think that, that carries with it two very significant problems. The one is Legislation can never be that good. It can never be that precise. You, I think we, we would necessarily enact legislation that has drastic unintended consequences. And, and the second aspect of it, this is again a very formal one, I would argue it, it violates uh, the freedom to conduct a business under Article 16 of, of the EU Charter to not leave any room at all for a platform operator to decide what content it wishes and not wishes to distribute on its platform and to regulate everything, every aspect of it. I, I don't think at the end of the day that that would be justified, but that's, that's my take. 
Thank you very much, Lucas. Thank you to all five of you for almost um, two hours of most insightful debate. Um, I, I take two things with me. The first one is, I think the minimum standard all of us can agree on is we need to talk a lot more um, and we need to find a joint approach in Europe. So one of the things that I will do right after ending this is that I will write a message to myself that I should have a similar debate in 2032, in 10 years, whether these um, goals were at all <laughs> achieved by the then 10 years old DSA. Let's have a look into this and let's have a follow-up debate in March 2032, if you agree. Thank you to all of you who are here. Thank you to all who are listening out there. Uh, it was a pleasure to host this. Uh, stay connected, stay interested, and in particular, stay as healthy as possible. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye-bye.